Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling here today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. And I'm Darren Lasagas. And uh, how has this year shaped the way that you read? Uh, Today on the show... We're going to be joined by Wiradjuri and Wawan woman, Teela Reed. She's a lawyer, former teacher, and the co-founder of Blackfella Book Club. It's an Instagram initiative that kicked off uh, right at the start of the pandemic and dedicated to providing a space for other Blackfellas to connect, dissect, critique, and to, uh, in the creator's words, read and write the revolution. Um, how's reading been for you, Sarah, in the pandemic? Oh, don't attack me. <laughs> I'm feeling attacked. I don't want to answer that. Um, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. Look, it's a weird time to be doing literally anything. anything. I know, I know. Look, my reading hasn't been, like, immense, but I've been, I have read one, fan, like, fantastic book. I've only read one book, and it's um, Amanda Seal's book, Small Doses. I talk mm-hmm. about it regularly now. That's how much, I feel like that book did so much for me that I was like, I'm, You're like, full. I'm full. Yeah. I've, like, I've, I feel full. I feel, I feel filled up. No, that's not how you say it. Filled up. I feel filled up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, it's such a amazing piece of literature, and it did so much for me in understanding my position as a creative, but also as um, a black woman, and also understanding social media and how we engage with social media as creatives and understanding capitalism and understanding our relationships with men and understanding our relationships with our sisters. And oh, it, just, it, it covered everything. Um, yeah, I think it's a, if you want to read anything, go to Amanda Seal's book, Small Doses. Yeah. I even think white women, all people need to read that book to understand mm. um to understand everything in terms of their own identities and where their identities are coming from as yeah. white people too, because Amanda Seals is super direct about it and she's got to help you in having those uncomfortable conversations about whiteness as well. I feel like I'm in a similar boat to you. Um, I feel attacked. I feel like I attacked myself. I set myself <laughs> a foul. Um, I'm like, like a fifth of the way through multiple books at the same time. I just don't. I can't focus. Yeah. Um, Tanya Ali, who is our executive producer, has let me multiple books and. <laughs> 
I just feel like she's never going to see them again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will say one book that I read that really stayed with me this week, uh, this year, and I feel like a lot of people as well, is Ocean Vuong, uh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. It's about a um, Vietnamese-American boy uh, whose parents were immigrants. And um, it deals a lot with like intergenerational trauma, um, being a young, queer, first-gen immigrant in uh, middle America, and um, it's incredible storytelling and writing. He's actually a poet first and foremost so yeah that that one filled me up there yeah. was a lot in that i was crying every second page <gasps> wow every second i was crying yeah and people who've read the book probably have felt the same way but uh, if you've yet to read it you need a little bit of a tearjerker access those emotions mm. give Ocean Look, a try. i love literature film and television that does that to me mm. i'm like i said like I, I like to attack myself as well and so <laughs> I like to comfort myself from time to time. But, like, we've had these conversations back and forth about, like, why crying is so therapeutic. It's oh, a release. Yeah. It's releasing that pressure valve, you know. It's super important to cry. And so, like, I will watch, like, stuff sometimes just to get myself to cry because I'm like, I'm in the mood for it. Yeah. What do you what do you watch to make yourself cry? <laughs> um, One, oh, God. So, uh, the first... I don't know if I would watch it now, but I, I used to watch it a lot, and it was um The Green Mile. Oh, yeah. That would just kick me in the guts every time. Tom Hanks. <laughs> oh, man, that movie really did it. And um, there was one thing that I watched recently, because I was rewatching Modern Family, and there was a scene when um, Shush and Darren's <laughs> laughing at me. I mean, you said you're going to attack yourself, but I mean, like, go, please thing, go forth. Sometimes it can be so easy. Oh, It'll yeah, just do it yeah. to me straight away. So Modern Family, when Gloria says she's pregnant, I started crying. And then last night I was re-watching Friends and I and I'm sure and I'm up to the episode where Ross and Rachel break up. I cry. Okay. You looked at me as if I was like, I don't remember that happening. But yeah. When Ross, yeah, so it was like simple things. And like yeah, look, yeah. I love it. I love yeah, it. It's whatever my, it's it takes. My zone. I'm know in... your know your pressure points and yeah. access them whenever you need them. I feel good after it. You're like, so in touch with yourself. That's I great. Know. It takes something really simple. I'm a simple bitch. <laughs> You are not. You're complex. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> Fill me up. <laughs> you are listening to Race Matters with Sada Khan and Darren Lasagas. Up next, we're going to be joined by Teela Reed to talk about why she founded Blackfellow Book Club. This is Race Matters with Darren Lasagas and Sada Khan. And we are joined in the studio by Wiradjuri and Wawan woman, Teela Reed, woman of many hats. She's a lawyer, a former teacher, and more recently the founder of Blackfella Book Club, um, founded with also Marinda Dutton at the start of the pandemic um, to empower First Nations storytellers. So we're so excited to just unpack all of this with you. Thank you so much, sis, for joining us. Yama, thanks for having me on. So take us back to the start of the pandemic for you. At what point did you think Blackfellow Book Club, this needs to exist? Well, look, I have always had a love of storytelling, being Blackfellas, mm. our mob tell yarns all the time around the campfire. Um, and the pandemic really hit probably about March, mid-March, 
And into the beginning of April, um, my sister, my tita, Marinda, mm-hmm. uh, at work, her and I work at the same workplace. We're both lawyers. And um, we we're like, she was like, let's start up a Zoom book club. And so we started up the Zoom book club. And then just r- super randomly one day, I just created a handle called Blackfella Book Club and said, oh, he did I like sign into this and we'll just post our books and whatever. And that's how it started, like literally just from our love of storytelling and just wanting to share our yarns with people, not just in books, but podcasts and you know, we love your mm. show. Oh, and, no <laughs> yeah, so that's just how it started. Um, you mentioned that, you know, Blackfellas sharing stories is like not a new thing at all. You know, there's generations and generations of traditions of storytelling and uh, it exists in multiple forms as well. How does Blackfellow Book Club translate that for a new generation? Well, I think that our love and lust of storytelling has always existed and our platform is built in this philosophy that, you know, our ancestors are the original storytellers. And I think that that is a really fundamental and powerful principle because if it wasn't Marinda and I behind the handle, we know that there are so many other black fellas that are capable of holding this space Mm. and sharing their love of storytelling with everyone. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, the cup is, like, massively overflowing, especially in the online spaces. Like, what we've seen kind of culminate from the last six months of the pandemic as well and this kind of really staunch solidarity that's transpired, especially amongst the sister girls. How have you felt watching that kind of grow as well? No, it's been really beautiful because at the same time, both Marinda and I have worked full-time intensely, so kind of our jobs on the front line of the criminal justice system. I'm a defence lawyer. She's a civil lawyer. We were essential workers, so for us um, it consistently uh, was difficult with the uncertainty of where COVID-19 was. And I think reconnecting through stories and um, reaching out to titters and sisters, that that would really strengthen kind of our solidarity through really difficult times. Mm. And so for you, who have been some of your favourite writers that you've been connecting with in amongst all of these communities? I have so many favourite writers and storytellers. Um, I would have to say Professor Eileen Morton Robinson, mm. who is a proud Gompel woman and wrote the book Talking Up to White Woman. Um, that's really a book that has kind of um, helped me through a lot of difficult times as well in the colony. You know, this we live in a country that is colonised and that we are still under invasion. Mm-hmm. And that book has really kind of given me strength in my um, identity as a proud First Nations sovereign woman to step up and continue to hold these front lines in space. So I really love her writing. Um, but there's just so many. I just finished reading uh, Song of the Crocodile by Nadi Simpson. Simpson. I'm waiting for my copy to come through <laughs> of that. <laughs> it's like, it'll take you to like a different world. I really especially encourage non-Indigenous people to, to read this book because her writing, it it connects you to the ancestors. Yeah. And I don't think that um, non-Indigenous people understand precisely how um, profound that is to understanding our sense of belonging in mm. this world. And Nadi just has such a beautiful way of uh, writing from a human perspective but also 
bringing through the connections that we have with ancestors, with trees, with stars, with our stories, and and it, it's a really it, it it'll make you cry. <laughs> I'm so I'm actually so excited to read that book because um I I had I got the opportunity to yarn up with her this week as well about it and the way she just like just even herself you can hear the story like through her through her veins and even though it's written in fiction it's still based in reality and it's got so much um in it that we need to read in terms of understanding like our old people as well and like where they've come from, the lives, the lived experiences of their own and how it informs us now. But like more so for like, yeah, like you said, like non-Indigenous people to be reading up on because it's something that like we can't really explain. And I think for um, our ways of storytelling, you know, non-Indigenous people say fiction, non-fiction or sci-fi or whatever. But for us, all of our stories are grounded in a sense of truth. Mm. And Nadi is such a powerful storyteller, as you've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. She blows my mind and she just got an awe about it that you just immediately feel like safe. Like you can feel the ancestors around her a lot. And we then in addition to those books, you know, we, we love kids' books. I love mm. children's books. I think that children's books are totally underestimated for adults. Like they are so profound. They speak to really important issues. Like, you know, one of the books that really touched me this year was Bruce Pascoe's book Found. Mm. Um, it's about introducing to younger um, children the concept of stolen generations and the truth-telling around that. And just all, you know, the little yarns that we grew up with as kids, they're just – they teach you so much about understanding the world. Yeah. I want to talk about a little bit about the, the community that you and Marinda have uh, created as a space for black fellows to share their stories. Um, you talk about it being a safe space. You know, how do we go about making safe spaces, uh, you know, like Blackfellas Book Club, when they're so open to public engagement as well? I think for us, um, creating the safe space has been about understanding our community obligations. Um, and understanding who we are in the strength of our First Nations identity and that from that starting point you have an organic growth, I think, of um, interest in in what you're putting out to the world because it's not fake. Mm. Um, it just totally is just sharing our love for our stories and, and other people's stories and in respectful ways. And I think that non-Indigenous people especially have responded to that because, um, you know, as Sarah was saying, our stories are grounded in truth. And with the Black Lives Matter movement that come over the top of COVID and we all experience that, we witnessed um, through Backfuller Book Club a lot of people coming to our platform seeking a better understanding of truth. Yeah, and I guess when you add in the element of a publishing industry as well there's a whole facet of layers that come with that because it's a predominantly white space and so how do we then kind of nurture platform and celebrate black voices in a way that is authentic and safe well it is 
um, a challenge, I think, because part of the platform's work is also organically about decolonizing these spaces. Mm. So initially at the beginning of the year, I, I had a couple of writers' festivals lined up, just, um, you know, holding space for some authors that I know. And I actually had an in-conversation with Uncle Archie Roach. Oh, nice. Like, and then, you know, all of that got cancelled. But I guess my point is, yeah, like, it's a challenge to continue to grow these platforms. Um, but I think if you do it from a sense of strength and and always ensuring as First Nations peoples that what we do is integral to our communities, but also, you know, understanding if, if a mob aren't also appreciating the platform, then we have to change the way and what we're doing. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think as well, like, with mob wanting to put their stories out there as well with these kind of big industries, these big colonial industries, because every industry mm. here is is a colonial industry. And so how do we then kind of recognise within our own stories and what those stories might come up against in terms of the society, how do we then recognise problematic publishing houses that might not have First Nations stories and people's best interests at heart? I think that... Um... For example, there are, I, in my experience, limited publishing houses in Australia um, that understand the principles and protocols of First Nations storytelling. I think a really good example of doing the work really well is Magabala Books mm. that are based out of Broome in the Kimberley. They um, have a really sensitive approach to the ethics and understanding and the way in which uh, First Nations stories, you don't just get, you know, your your rights over them and that the um, the writers and the storytellers will always continue to keep their rights. And I think that one of the things that I feel very uncomfortable about in this space is seeing non-Indigenous publishers who think that our stories um, are are just up for sale and for grabs. And um, I think non-Indigenous publishing needs to really reflect during this year um, and learn from really fantastic models like Magabala Books that, you know, because some of our stories are not meant to be shared. That's right. Yeah. And and you know that from going up in community, there are ones that um, are really sacred and are really important to our families and they're not meant to be shared with the rest of the world. Um, and then there are other stories, you know, um, we're sure they might be out there in that space, but I think there's a, there is, you know, in our community, there's a very fi fine line between what can and can't be shared. And I think in in some instances, non-Indigenous publishing houses um, abuse their power in the way in which they, they publish things. Yeah, especially when it comes to not understanding the lived experiences as well of where these stories are coming from. And sometimes, like, there are stories that are being published and the people that are publishing them don't have the lived experiences of that they've kind of we're getting an appropriation of the blackfella experience and the black mm. and our and our stories and our narrative and then they go and because publishing houses are not recognizing who's coming through then we end up having like a false like a false um narrative being pushed out of us something that's not really authentic and i think you make a good point like when i think first nations tell their stories that it often is from a lived experience and that if you don't have that lived experience then 
in our community, that's, you know, a protocol issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not something that, like, these publishing houses understand or try to even tr- attempt to understand. And because, like, we have, like, LORE law, then they've got LA- LAW law. Mm. And it's another thing that can collide when it comes to our storytelling because they're about the capitalist stuff, whereas, like, we're always – everything's got to go back to cultural protocol and we never just speak it on behalf of ourselves. We always speak it on behalf of our community. Totally. And I think, you know, the, often the way in which the colony functions, it, it's all about money and impact, mm. whereas um, ours is about sharing sacred things that are that are sacred for us and often um the way in which they're shared i mean we we have to be really conscious about it i think this this is a really important discussion because um right now and i i certainly think that black lives matter has amplified this space and interest um in in elevating first nations voices Mm. um but that doesn't mean that they're free for all yeah 100 percent we want to talk about the essay you wrote for Griffith's Review earlier this year, um, 2020, The Year of Reckoning, Not Reconciliation, 250 Years Since the Invasion of Australia. You wrote that back in February before the pandemic and before the global resurgence of Black Lives Matter. Um, how has this idea of reckoning changed for so-called Australia? Look, I think that Australia has a long way to go with reckoning. And I don't think that you can have reconciliation unless we have a reckoning. Mm. And reckoning to me is about addressing these fundamental power issues of our country. It's about addressing the fact that we have gone on for so long now um, without treaty, without truth and without a First Nations voice and that that's an uncomfortability that we haven't addressed. You know, we can't just continue to forget Mm. that this country has not recognised that there were people here before invasion. Yeah. I mean, it also speaks to this idea of the Australian identity and this is something that really infuriates me when I get confronted with it and because the Australian identity is always pushed to the forefront forefront because it's like the marketing tool to actually deflect the actions of the colony so what we see is these big billboards and big messages constantly of the Australian identity being barbecues and beaches and being laid back and then you've got a little bit of Indigenous Australia on there sprinkled on top for just a bit of colour um, and this identity is so false, but it dominates everything. How do you challenge this identity? Well, I think that exactly what you described, the capacity to be able to tell and frame what people think Australia is, if it's a barbecue or, you know, the Union Jack and the Southern Cross, those things are about power. Mm. They're about who has the power to tell a nation's story. Yeah. And um, the fact that we are 250 years post-invasion and First Nations peoples are still suffering um, at the hands of the colony, still dying um, as a result of, you know, being in custody or incarcerated at the highest rates in the world, that these are fundamental power issues Mm. because those who hold the power are, generally speaking, white privileged men. And um, they do not want to give up their power for First Nations to be able to tell stories, which I think why it's easy for often, you know, Australia to embrace symbolism, which is about, you know, um, at 
reconciliation week, having their tea and their cupcakes and feel-good processes Mm. without addressing the fact that we still have racist laws operating in our society and laws that continue to oppress First Nations peoples. And that's a power shift. Yeah. That's about ensuring that when people in positions of power are making laws, that what we need to do is address how First Nations have input and say into those processes because we need accountability when we're alive, not dead. You know, we need accountability when we shouldn't have to protest every time we lose a brother or a sister. Mm. We should have power um, every day in the colony because this is our sovereign country. Mm. And I think our generation are much more open to this conversation. And I have felt that in the particularly last few years that I've traveled the country, um, you know, connecting with grassroots organizations and um it's it's absolutely about power like for example the prime minister this year had uh, asserted that slavery had never existed yeah Mm. the fact that he can speak before the entire country and say that without any accountability um about actually being called to speak the truth on that issue which is there actually was slavery this nation is built on slavery that's about him having the power to tell that story without being held accountable mm. for that lie. Yeah. I mean, the, I think that's the most infuriating part of it is because it's so simple. It's just power. All you have to do is relinquish your power. But for them, the idea of equity means that they lose. It's it's mm. this, you know, everything is a game. Everything is about um, how am I going to win? You know, that's why they, you know, they come from people that was all about conquer. Mm. And I think that's a big part, that's a big problem as well within um, the thinking of this nation is that in order to succeed, in order to strive, in order to have thriving civilizations, it has to be about, you know, for survival of the fittest, who conquered first instead of like, mm. you know, actually, and then just like, but you're actually condoning oppression and like you're mm. not hearing that but they'll use all this other like you know flash fancy academic lingo in order to like subvert it for what it actually is yeah and you see it in so many facets of like australian identity one of them that really gets me and that i've been kind of investigating for a long time uh, in myself is this idea of multiculturalism and what that means to the australian identity when um you're pushing this ideal of multiculturalism where like uh, at the base of it, like immigrants to this country have also benefited from the displacement of indigenous people. Like I am a benefactor of that displacement as a non-indigenous immigrant, like a child of immigrant people. So when people say to like non-white people of color in Australia, where are you really like, where are you from? And then they say, oh, I'm from Australia, but are you really? Like, yeah. that's something I've been questioning too, because like, yes, there is an Australian-ness, but also I'm not from here. Like, this is not my land. Like, mm. and you have to kind of readjust and like re-evaluate the way that you benefit off your proximity to like white privilege and white power, you know? And I think that people who are in positions of privilege and power often can't understand the level of oppression because they don't have the lived first-hand experience Mm. of it. And that is, I think, a difficulty in articulating to people, um, you know, part of this reckoning, if we're going to readdress the foundational issues of our country and tell a more fuller and profound story of, of our nation and an honest story and a truthful story, that you have to check your own privilege Uh, because 
the way in which you um, have privilege and power functions means that at the other spectrum of that, there are a group of people that continue to be oppressed. And I think that's the that's the core of the challenge yeah. is that where um, racism, for example, or oppression is invisible, it's invisible because people don't experience it mm. in privileged positions. Yeah. <sighs> you get to this point of like you know when people who are telling you that you can't prove racism or you can't prove systemic racism racism which is something that you know exists in the law as well like being able to pr- prove systemic racism is not something that can be recognized in law um that i've heard of anyway and it's like the people who are deciding that are white people in power how yeah. can you how can you how can you you know prove an experience that is true to you but you can't prove in an in like language of fact you know yeah and it's also infuriating when we see who is like when they do want to listen who's also taking up that space again because it's all about that proximity to whiteness and so when we confront the colony and there's like the heads turn or whatever it often feels like white women take up the space and reserve it primarily for how the patriarchy solely affects them. And and then completely, like, again, whitewashes out our voices and we end up at the bottom of the ladder again in trying to forefront our struggles and also, like, push it into the national consciousness, just the simple fact of that, like, these lands are unstated, you're on Aboriginal land. Mm. And then everything else comes after that. That's not even, you know. And so is this something that you've witnessed in within your spaces or your workplace or online, offline, how that um, narrative of the white woman and their, you know, being at the receiving end of patriarchal abuse and that kind of like overtaking what you need to get what you want to get said well i think often for us as black women women it's a feeling that you are trying to put your hand on to explain the way in which oppression um continues to affect us and when you think about white feminism Mm. for example it's about tearing down the patriarchy or it's about being equal to men, um, you know, at the top of the food chain or the corporate ladder. And um, I think that white feminism – and and Professor Eileen Morton Robinson talks about this Mm. in her book, Talking Up to the White Woman, um, about how actually white women in their pursuit of their feminism are oppressors of people of colour. Um, and I think that what we haven't done in Australia very well, whether it's at schools or universities, is we don't have appropriate critical race theory um, education. If you look at different countries around the world, there are critical race theories being taught um, in institutions. It's why, you know, you've got Black Lives Matter coming out of America um, and not Australia because they actually engage critically with these issues and not just, you know, a spare of the moment, oh, you're a racist or no, I'm not kind of racist conversation. Like we're very surface level mm. in our conversations. And back to your point, which was um, about inter- institutional racism. I mean, it's actually quite easy to identify if you look at the statistics mm. of what First Nations peoples are suffering from. And one example of this is since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody about you know 30 years ago, um, the statistics indicate that First Nations women incarceration has soared rapidly by 148%. So you can't 
kind of go, okay, let's leave these systems as they are yeah. because they're not working. Mm. They're literally incarcerating us and killing us. And that's how systemic racism works. It disproportionately affects people of colour. Mm. Mm. Um, Tila, we are nearing the end of our time together, but there is one question that um, we kind of naturally lead to that we ask every guest who comes through on the show on Race Matters. Uh, but Tila Reed, when did you realise there was power in your race? I have always felt a power in my race. It's like when you sit down with our old people on the campfire, if you look out, you know, in their eyes when they tell a story or, you know, you hold their hand, you can feel the power Mm. in our old people, in our ancestors. When you dig your toes into, you know, the dusty Western Plains where I'm from, we have a connection to that country that is indescribable in English. And I think as black fellows, we have always had that fire burning um, and we continue to fight for our people because we know that what continues to guide us is the struggle of our ancestors. Yeah. Thank you so much, my Tita, my Wailwan sister. I know. For, for, Teal's from town over next door to me. Um, <laughs> Wailwan all the way. Thank you so much, my sister girl, for joining us. We really, really appreciate you coming in and privileging us with your words and your knowledge. It's um, something that we've been wanting to have on this show for a long time, so I really thank you. It was so deadly. Thank you all for having me. This is Warumpi Band with Blackfella, Whitefella. What a tune. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you color, as long as you are true fella, as long as you are real fella. This is Race Matters. My name is Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Big things happened in the last week, as it usually does. I mean, yeah. One thing that happened was the Savage Fenty Volume 2 show premiered on Amazon Prime on October 2nd. Um, it was widely celebrated because of the because of its body inclusivity. Oh, yeah, the representation on the imagery and the um, access of Savage and Fenty is unparalleled yeah, at this point. Yeah, and she did take it to a whole other level. Mm. Like, it got even more just celebration because she released um, a line of Savage, a Savage Men's line, mm. and the models in it were plus-size black men and with stretch marks and all, like, and just there as, like, this is normal. This is... Uh, this. These are bodies. These are human bodies, and they're beautiful in every single shape and size and colour and facet. Love it. Um, so... It got a lot of celebration. Yeah. And then things took a turn. (laughs) (laughs) As things mostly do, but you would never really expect it with Rihanna. Like, she's been pretty, you know, she holds herself accountable to the stuff when she gets called out. But this was on another another level, I feel. So, can I tell you how I came across this? Oh, no. How'd you come across this? Finished my show on Tuesday. 
got on the train. I had to go out to Parramatta for um, another job that I was doing. I was doing workshops out there. Jumped on the train. I get a phone call from Celeste, yeah, our fave, yeah. our fave Celeste Carnegie. And <laughs> she messages me and she's like, sis, 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 I need to ring you. I was like, and I'm thinking <laughs> something's wrong. Something has happened. I'm like on the train. I'm like, yeah, go on, sis, ring me, ring me. And she's like, have you been on Twitter? <laughs> I was like, no. no. And she's like, oh my God. Go on Twitter and search Rihanna is cancelled party. <gasps> I was like, Rihanna is cancelled? Oh. What? This is just off the back of the Savage show as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I go into it all and I see what has happened. So what had happened was um, there was a song within one of the Savage um scenes one of the um one of the runway one of the choreographies choreographies i don't know if that's a word but um <laughs> one of the segments of the show and um it's not a radio show okay it's like a runway <laughs> it's just a segment in my notes okay, 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 sorry. so one of the one of the parts of the show um had a song on it called doom and this song was by a dj called cuckoo chloe and What's in the song is a remix of a sacred text from um, the Quran. Um, it's a Islamic hadith, and that had been remixed by this DJ, and that was in the show. Mm. So it was highly inappropriate. And it brought to question how much creative control and direction does Rihanna actually hold? Is she really the artistic director? And when you actually look into her team of people, it's not like Beyonce. It's Mm. not like the homecoming show where it's black from top to bottom and Beyonce has full control over everything down to like, you know, when the beat stops, you know, she like every little thing where she steps, she structured those stairs where she was stepping, where she was walking, everything. So it's like when this came out, it was like Rihanna. Rihanna. Like yes, because you, you think might it's not her. Like she's such a salient figure in this entire campaign. You know, yeah. like you think it's her. It's her. Where you're making us think that you're involved in every facet of this production, but are you really? Because if you're hearing a song, like even if you don't know the song, this is a great point that Celeste brought up as well. Celeste was like, if I'm hearing a song in another language, I'm gonna go and Google and you investigate. It. I yeah. want to know what I'm listening to. Mm. So it's just like. Sis, like, this is a really bad mistake. Not even a mistake. Like, this is something that could have been so avoided. And um, So she, she came out with an apology, right? She apologised. Sarah <laughs> is labouring over this apology. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a good apology. She takes yeah. full accountability yeah. for it. Um, I just don't appreciate the whole, like, you know, I didn't know. Because mm, I'm yeah. like... But you should. You should have known. You you need to do a full overhaul of your creative team, sis, because this is not it. Yeah. Um, Great. Look, she takes accountability. She she listens to people when she stuffs up. But I'm just like, are you actually in every facet of this production? Or is is it an orange and new black situation where it's actually a lot of white people behind the scenes? Yeah. A lot of white people writing pock stories. And black people are just Mm. used as, like, you know, an authentic marker again. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. Rihanna, if you're listening, like reach out. We love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so I'm always just like just, I don't want to talk too bad about her. <laughs> just in case she's listening. Yeah, just in case. Just in case. Because we're gonna know. have her on the show soon. Exactly. It's yeah, gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Tila Reed for coming through to chat about Blackfella Book Club. I'm Darren Lasagas. and I'm Sada Khan. We will catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.